go to thecognitiverampage.com. Feel free to contribute, donate, keep fueling the change, whatever it is that you guys can do to help continue to allow this to happen. None of this would happen without you and your love and your support and, of course, your contributions. Love you. Welcome to Cognitive Rampage Podcast. Hope you're taking care of you. Hope you're living your Cognitive Rampage. My book, The Cognitive Rampage, A Scientific Approach to Self-Discovery, Change, and Life Optimization, is now available on Amazon. What I do in the book is I fuse the latest research from the cognitive, behavioral, social, environmental, and biological sciences. It's not just motivational fluff and wordplay. Now, I do talk about my own story, so there's some kind of inspiration in there, but I'm not just spinning words and hyping you up with motivational fluff. Whether you need a life change, simply enjoy self-exploration and optimization, want to discover new hidden passions, or reduce the life-altering effects of toil, anxiety, depression, all of those issues, this book is for you. This book is not a cookie-cutter method of steps to follow. You'll customize the scientific framework with your own personal beliefs to build your authentic change. That way you assimilate it faster and quicker. It's not just copying my beliefs and telling you step one, step two. These will come from your beliefs as how you extend and build the foundation upon this framework. You'll use this framework throughout your whole life, through every change, and through every age. These are not empty words of motivational spin. This book is an experience. The Cognitive Rampage is based in science and is built from your beliefs. It's a path to help you unleash your desired change. You can apply this method on your own with no harmful side effects. You can simply go to Amazon.com, search The Cognitive Rampage, and you'll find the second edition there, uh, as well as the Kindle version. The audio book is going to be released sometime in June. Sometime in June, I will have the audiobook of the second edition available as well. My guest today on the show, another tribe of change warrior, as I like to call everybody in the tribe of change, but uh, he's got so many nicknames and AKAs, I'm not even quite sure what to call him, whether they call him Nick or John or Nicholas John or Leonfelter. So Nick Leonfelter is on the show. He's a blogger on the Cognitive Rampage, uh, a blog I hope you read. Uh, he wrote his thesis. Um, from his graduation, which he's recently graduated from. I'll let him tell you more about that. But uh, he wrote his thesis kind of centered around something I talk a lot about as a diagnosis I founded uh, called Athlete's Depression. He's a functional pac- uh, functional patterns practitioner, if you will. So for all UFP lovers out there, uh, you know where a lot of this knowledge and uh, cerebral stuff is going to stem from as well. But uh, thanks for coming on the show. And for me, Nick, it's a, a good way because I'm about to take about a 30-day hiatus from the podcast, as everyone in the tribe knows. Uh, I've been at this since August 2013, really, but uh, doing roughly two shows a week since August 2015 nonstop and uh, pushing it through. I haven't taken one break at all, so I'm taking 30 days. Actually, tomorrow I fly out to Orlando, uh, back to Florida. I'm out here in the desert, but I leave here tomorrow and plan to kind of I'm walking away. There's other hosts filling in. I hope you'll be one of those hosts too, et cetera, et cetera. But for me, when you booked this podcast, the very last day before I, I walked away on the, the hiatus for a little bit, I thought, man, how beautiful that really the next book 
you know, that we're talking about and that I've been talking about, et cetera, gets to be the last podcast before the 30 days, man. So forgive the blabber, but thanks for doing the show, man. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. I mean, I couldn't pass this opportunity up. I know we were we're talking for, for quite some time now. So when you asked me to be on the show, of course, I'm going to say, yeah. Wow. I appreciate it, man. But the, the writing is, is something I loved, man. When I read the blog, when you first sent it over, uh, before even Steve posted on the website, uh, you know, I was reading that shit and I'm like, damn, I'm like, I, I like the delivery. I like how you word. I, I, it was beautiful. I love, I love how you write, man. And that started getting me hooked a little bit. And I thought about co-authoring a book with somebody, uh, kind of taking notes from Stephen Kotler, right? And, uh, oh, excuse me, my dog's running all over the place. Uh, but anyway, co-authoring with you, I've been talking about the idea of athletes' depression. And then you went on and, well, you wrote a thesis, right, or something like that? Yeah, so it's technically like they call it a capstone, but the thesis is just a different word for it pretty much. Um, and, yeah, it all stems from pretty much athlete depression, right? That's kind of what the blog post was about as well. And uh, that's just kind of like a really condensed version of what the capstone entails. So I go into a little bit more detail as to like the review of literature, like what's out there currently, um, where is it going, you know, what I found with my my study, so to speak. And uh, it just really kind of piggybacks off of what we talked about last year uh, when you introduced me to the concept of athlete's depression. Yeah, I think uh, the first time I really, really brought it out was with Naudi, actually. I think Naudi Aguilar, uh, shout out everybody if you're listening, you know who that is, my little brown brother. Uh, he was on the show. We'd been doing a uh, a, f- a little series uh, on the podcast and on YouTube, The Myths of Fitness, and a couple other times he'd come on. Uh, and him and I, actually, I think it's episode 94, him and I sat down and just really dove into the, all the different aspects of it. I was kind of the first time I really shared it with uh, anyone else, although this is something been on my mind for a long time, many years, something uh, I'd really been looking into. But uh, you also ended up doing that survey, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the survey was a part of the actual capstone. So what I did was I pretty much just, uh, you know, asked tribe of chain members, you know, family members, everybody I knew to just kind of take this survey. And um, first off, thank you to everyone that actually took that survey. Uh, it was just kind of testing uh, using the DAS-21, which I'm not sure if you're familiar about, but it tests for depression, anxiety, and stress. I had some qualifying questions in there as to whether or not, like, you experienced a social uh, event um, that would kind of disqualify you because you'd be more at risk for depression, anxiety, or stress. So that's kind of where it started at. And then uh, just kind of rock and rolled from there, and I got the results in and all that stuff. So the, uh, look, I even took the survey and it was a one question for me. So I obviously didn't qualify. Um, maybe go into more depth, man, about the, the, uh, test for depression, et cetera, that you're talking about and why the qualifying and disqualifying question. Cause remember a lot of people were like, Hey man, I, I answered one question and that, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. So I used, uh, the, the social readjustment scale, um, which is, which is an old scale based off of like 1970 something research where if you had like a major life event within the past five years I think or uh, the last year I put it uh, that you pretty much were disqualified because I didn't want any current uh, stressors going on in your life to affect the results because what I was really looking for is if you uh, competed in sport as an adolescent so 13 years of age through 18 years of age right and then we wanted to see how that would affect you later on in life so there's there's some studies out there that says, you know, sports participation is great. You know, it leads to uh, social bonding and things like that. But uh, and I think what you deal with more, too, is well, what happens when all that goes away? Right. 
Yeah, that's essentially what athletes' depression is talking about. Is uh, I don't argue the fact that there's benefits from participating in organized sports or unorganized sports or just doing that whatsoever. Um, there are certainly benefits on on many levels, and people that attest to that, as I, I could as well. Um, it's definitely the long end factor, right? We, everyone was pretty right. aware of the head injuries, et cetera, that got pretty known concussion ideas. But uh, it was more for me a mental health aspect because just be just concussions themselves, these can be detrimental to your life and especially your future. But the mental health aspect of what it happens when an athlete that starts at a young age uh, defines themselves early as being that athlete. I am the gymnast. I think you wrote in the in the blog. Uh, right. I am the quarterback. I am the and when we define ourselves by that over time, it becomes who we are, essentially. It becomes a, a label. And as all labels can be detrimental, but there was more to it because our behavior as an athlete coming up is very ordered. We're told what to do. We're given a structure. We have a coach. Uh, we're graded constantly. What I mean is we rarely think for ourselves. As an athlete, you're programmed to learn the play, learn the schematics, learn the workout routine. Here's your nutrition plan all the way up through high school, college, and in the pros to where you just go where they tell you to, right? And you can add your own little remixes if you want to. Well, uh, when a person or especially a young age, being so influential in the development and the environmental influence uh, is guided by those types of structures. And the rewards come strictly from performance-based. If I receive reward, if I perform well, I receive love, acceptance. If I perform well, uh, well, I also receive the negative. If I don't perform well, over time, this manifests to a belief or a cognitive functioning, a, a how someone thinks is my performance then defines my value and how I perform at life, at marriage, at my job, at my finances. This is how I then define the value I have as a person. So what I was looking at is over time and experiencing it myself, right? When you're that person, that wrestler, that football player, and this goes away when you are no longer that, when you no longer receive rewards from uh, the coach, the team, the brotherly connection, because you also break a social connection. This becomes your friends. This is your everything, right? This is your brothers, your sisters, right? And then you take this away and you go in separate directions. Now we have a social impact, dramatic social impact of change. We have a cognition change of the way we're thinking now has to apply into a world that doesn't really work that way. Nobody's really behind you telling you work out this day, Tuesday, lift at this time, eat this much meal, see you on Sunday. The plane picks you up here or even the bus is leaving here. The structure is removed. So our behavior routine is removed. Uh, the way we think now, we process in that world going, hey, wait wait, what's wrong? Where, where's somebody telling me? What am I doing poorly? I'm performing bad. Then once the athlete performs poorly, we're not getting rewards. Self-value begins to drop and you see this deep, deep dive into depression, to drugs uh, and to risky behavior because you're trying to spike those Friday night lights again, that feeling that it felt, that brotherly connection, that sisterly connection. And we're not adapted to that. So if you take a six-year-old and you put them in sports and you put them in a structure of baseball, football, right? That all sports, all season, it's doing something and traveling. So they're structured, they're told what to do. They're given the diet, right? Especially the impact of the parenting coach. Good luck with that. Uh, I don't recommend that at all. Um, it can work out well, but you, you put a lot at risk. But um, when a six-year-old then comes up through all of that in life, all the way, their friends they gained, the people they knew, they're defined in us by that. And we all know when high school's over or the college career is over, and even for pros, when Sunday's not calling anymore, um, 
those rewards don't come, not to mention the physical impacts of living that way, period, as you're that old and played that long. Uh, the social, the cognitive impacts. So the kids 10, the kids 12, the kids 15, high school. These are my friends. This is the connection. I am the linebacker, right? This is who I am. And college goes. Maybe you go that far. Maybe you don't. But that removes. The routine is removed. The, the, the need to be healthy almost sometimes goes away, right? We're no longer utilized. We're on the bench, we say, right? We get lost. And athletes, though, being raised in that, you become relentless, right? A positive aspect of this is you learn not to give up, right? You learn unity. You learn team connection. Uh, these are wonderful things that add to us and, and a life experience, right? And so then we apply that never give up attitude mentally. And here we are, 23, 25, failed at this job, fired from this one. You can't find anything you really truly love. Nothing matches the passion you played the sport with. And you may be good at a lot of things. So you try this, you try that, but nothing's getting that spark again. So maybe you try MMA, right? Maybe you, you do something that sparks it, right? Let me put myself more at risk or something. That's why a lot of athletes transition to MMA and fighting and martial arts. It's recreating that environment constantly for stimulation, growth, reward, et cetera, unity, bonding, the whole idea. But I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling depressed, right? The athlete, no, I don't. I don't do that. I don't give up, right? Round three, round four, round five, right? The athlete continues to push forward, denying, denying, denying the idea of anything to do with depression, right? And the closest diagnosis that anything can anyone can think about would be depression at that point. Um, and, or if someone was ADHD possibly because athletes are hypertensive, we move, we think a lot, we're always working out, right? We're, we're connecting, we're moving. So what someone from afar looks at is someone failing constantly what we're not used to because we don't have coaches. We don't have structure. We don't know how to build that shit for ourselves. We've been living everyone else's. We don't even know who we are. Every job that you have fucking sucks. It doesn't near match with that love that you have when you played sports or that passion you had. So you become lost in self, but we fight it, we fight it, we fight it for a long time. We have spurts where we look like we're coming through, right? We're, we're ADHD. That's what they're looking at. Man, you're just working these crazy hours on through. I have this idea. Well, no, you must be ADHD, right? So what I'm doing is talking about the manifestation, manifestation the etiology, the development of the commonly diagnosed. So these athletes typically are diagnosed first with the depression or an ADHD symptom. Then from that depression, it continues to get worse because the athlete, I don't need help. Don't spot me. I got this shit, right? So I'm not reaching out. I'm a tough guy. Don't you remember? Watch my videos, right? I was this shit. I was this guy. So the denial is much higher from a nine, six, seven-year-old that goes through that developmental process of denying the impact of which they're facing mentally and won't admit it. When someone who hasn't been raised in a sports structure of never give up and more of a reach out for help, help other people type of environment, uh, not so combative, right, or uh, competition or competitive, tend to be open, right, about what they're feeling, the weaknesses they feel. You can't show weakness on that field, right? Can't do that. So when, however long the athlete then fights this for so long, this depression gets worse and worse and worse. And then they have these spouts, like I said, where they – they get it together, they change a bunch of shit, they come out the gate like it's the fourth quarter or overtime, and they're swinging hard for a little bit, even looking a little manic, starting to look a little manic here. For two weeks, you've been busy on this project, not sleeping, you know, you're not interested in anything else, but you're focused, highly focused, and possibly it fails due to many emotional distractions or the fact it's life. Businesses fail, relationships fail, and this happens, and then we fight even harder. 
So what I'm talking about is an etiology over a 10 year period, which is really about 20. So when the child starts playing sports all the way through up into to when this may or may not begin to happen, when the person now first is diagnosed with the depression, they fight it for a long time, maybe ADHD on top of that, but then comes the shit part where the diagnosis hits the bipolar range. Now you have athletes being diagnosed after a decade long of fighting depression on their own and trying to adjust socially, behaviorally, uh, how we think, et cetera, and trying to adjust that, we've now developed into what now can be a disability. And when you're diagnosed with a disability, this becomes destructive to us, right? Now I'm disabled. No, I was this, I was that. Can you see the spiral, right? This is a spiral that walks and we now believe we have ADHD. We now believe we're bipolar, et cetera. But dude, these athletes were raised little gladiators. <laughs> you, you, you take a seven-year-old and you put them in the 300 training camp. And then when they're at the end of the shit, right, they're going like, oh, my, not me. How could this be? You have high rates of suicide, deep, deep addiction issues, deep, deep things, violent relationships. You have a problem with anger. These are things that manifest through the athlete because of the hypertensive situations, because that happens. And for me, I thought, man, after maybe treating it three years with antidepressants, because it's not full-on depression, and then maybe it switches over time. All these meds, now we're fucking with our biology. We're in-tune athletes, sensitive to every little thing you put in your body. More sensitive than others, I would say. And then you start to put in these antidepressants and then other other painkillers, et cetera, right? And now you have a full biology change. Your your thinking is is fucked. Now imagine working head injuries on top of that, and at the end of all realizing that etiology is you don't have – these athletes don't need to focus on going through misdiagnosis, which becomes the big problem. Five, 15, 10 years of misdiagnosis of wondering what it is I'm dealing with. Is it bipolar? Am I manic? Is this depressive? We don't go through this spectrum. Is truly being aware of what's really affecting it. And the closest diagnosis that I could come up with uh, in the book currently of the DSM was what I saw was identity, identity dissociative disorder. But this, again, is an impactful disorder. An adjustment disorder would be the lightest diagnosis, but an adjustment disorder is so insurance can bill you, and really what you're saying is, hey, you're going through some shit. But what the athlete is experiencing is not a fucking light-ass adjustment disorder, okay? So I would not even lay that light diagnosis, if any, on it. So the only thing, and we, they use diagnosis to be able to a path of treatment. So if we're then looking at identity associative disorder, well, now we're starting to look at some serious impactful illusions, possible delusions, creation, right? Separation. Uh, it can get, whoa, easy, right? When you're really just kind of walking into athlete's depression is what you're dealing with. And when you know that, then you can apply the steps, which is, well, how do I recreate the social connection I had with my team? How do I recreate the purpose, the need, a, a focus, a dream? You know how you operate. That awareness can make you go anywhere. But the idea is I can now set up, maybe I want to compete in this, right? Maybe I want to set my goal not to win the championship, but to have a master's, right? Maybe it's to start this business or get in here. When we can apply those same thinking patterns that we had as athletes to be successful and we're aware of what the impact is, then we avoid 10, 15 years of misdiagnosis, of pills, of wondering and why it's no. We're just to a social connection, a new way of thinking needs to be cultivated. We cannot think and look for coaches to tell us what to do. It's learning to move and think and live life on your own, not defined by what you did, not defined even currently by what you do, that my value as a human being is not based on how I perform, that simply having human potential, no matter where I'm at financially or anywhere else in my life, I have that value and it's limitless. 
and separating that I will fail at this possibly, I will succeed at this, but I am not defined by how I perform. And when you can approach that, that's what I point out. I'm not advocating ending sports. I'm not advocating that at all. It's the structure of how they're in them, but letting the athlete know along the way over the years, hey, you're more to me than this baseball pitcher, right? You're more to me than this gymnast over there. And knowing that, educating. The NFL guys know that. They tell these rookies, hey, man, don't go blowing your money, right? Don't invest, start a business, do something. They're saying prepare for this because at the end you're not going to be. They know, but they're not talking about it in high school. They're not seeing the impacts. And so I made the hypothesis that uh, sounds terrible to open it, but, right, we got to make a statement before we can investigate the theory, was that playing sports as a child early on, all the way up into high school or professionally impacts you the same when it comes to mental health that you increase your chances of keyword severe mental health impacts by 60 to 75 percent that's what i've been stating and then that's where you came in you filled that in you started doing the study etc yeah man so i mean whew, talk about a rampage right there congratulations that was sick you have me you have me drawn in man from the heart, brother. That's but I was one, right? It, it meant something to me because I, I went through that. Look, I, I went and got this master's mental health counseling, right? It cost me too much fucking money to get in a field that's fucking corrupt. So I'm fucking paying for a house I'll never live in. I got a mortgage with this shit. But the way I look at it is I say, you know what? That would have been 10 years of therapy and way more expensive. I went in and learned this shit. And I was like, all right, now I was also too narcissistic, but at least I was aware, right? So it makes me a little less narcissistic when you're at least aware you are. So I'm like, I got to go learn this shit for myself with these therapists are telling me, you know, and then I, I got in that shit. And so for me, it was looking at it at this long run, being the athlete, kind of going through that feeling, interviewing more athletes, talking to more of them going, fuck, that's exactly what it felt like, man. Right. And, and having that awareness is really what this book really, I want it to be about brother. And that's, and after you wrote that blog and then you went as far as the survey and adding this and the research, I thought, yeah, man, co-author this shit with me, man. Yeah, man, I'm I'm definitely excited for that for sure. Yeah, the blog just really kind of documented exactly what you just said. Like that was my experience, right? Like growing up as an athlete, like from the time I was six years old all the way into to high school. You know, I talked about like my last wrestling match at the state championship, and like I could I could see, I could feel it, and like in a in an instant, I literally felt all of that. What you just described, like immediately after that match, right? Like I didn't even have to wait the ten years, the twenty years. I it, it hit me, right, and um you know, right after that match, I decided like I wasn't going to go and wrestle in college. And then when college came around, guess what happened? Man, it's that time of year. I got, I, you know, I started feeling like this anxiety, like I need to be doing something. I need, you know what I mean? So I, I contacted the coach, like, Hey, can I walk on the team? You know, one of the coaches happened to be a, pr a prior coach of mine to come on out. You know, I got in the wrestling room. I, I felt good again. You know, it was me. I was, I was wrestling, you know, I was getting my ass kicked and, and all this stuff. And then what happened? died down a little bit, you know, what's going on, what's, what's happening, stopped wrestling again. And then, you know, then you, you wait a few years and then you start to see the, the long-term effects of, of what that really does to you. Just the, like you described the Friday night lights, right? How can you get that feeling? How can you recreate that feeling? And it's not something that, uh, experiencing that, like I could, I could define it like you, you know what I mean? Like I had to have you come across and start talking about it for me. Like, holy shit, this guy's dead on. Like, this is, this is what it is, right? And uh, everything that you kind of just described, uh, you know, I led to some research into, like, what they call athletic identity, right? Like, it's, it's just the, the uh, individual identifying their self-concept of being an athlete. So that's when I was writing things like, you know, I am 
the wrestler I am, the gymnast, right? Like they, they identify very strongly with that position and that's how they attach who they are, right? Like you are no longer you, you are the athlete, right? Um, and then this is important too, because, you know, especially during the adolescent period, which is why I, I specifically asked people in, in my survey, you know, 13 to 18 years old, I mean, give or take years, obviously this starts much earlier with these peewee football leagues at five years old and, you know, their dad's screaming for blood out there. But I wanted to focus specifically on that period just because, um, you know, Eric Erickson pioneered, uh, you know, the identity guy, right? And uh, adolescents during this this period are going through this cognitive development and they're establishing a basis of identity, identity. But not only that, but this is the time where they're they're identifying their role in society, right? The much bigger picture, not only yourself you're dealing with, but you're dealing with where do I fit in with everyone else? You know, think about that. Like, okay, so now you now you've identified with this role as an athlete so strong. At the same time, um, finding your place in society. Well, that's your place in society, right? Like, that's who you are. That's must that must be who you are in society. So, like you were describing, you know, come down um, down the road, twenty years, ten years. You know, that's still their role in society. That's what they think that their role in in society is. And identity really is just um, it's how we view the world through different lenses of, of self, self-concept, right? We have these different lenses that we can put on and, and view the world differently. Um, but the more activate, the more active a certain lens is, the more salient it becomes, right? The more you no longer have the ability to switch between lenses. It's, this is my lens, you know, you don't, you lose that ability. And uh, the more salient it is, well, then the more likely that person is going to view all situations through that lens, Right. So if, if you're the athlete and let's say, and this varies for, for between sports, right? So maybe a ping pong player is not going to have the same detrimental lens that a, a boxer might, but maybe they will. I don't know. You know what I mean? I guess it's person dependent. But uh, so once, you know, you lose the ability to switch through these lenses and you hold on to that lens, even after sports, um, sure, you may lose like identity. Uh, they, they have tests for that, like how... Uh, how closely do you identify with the athlete role? Well, they show, you know, as time progresses further away from sport, your, your athletic identity decreases. But what about that lens that we talked about, right? Like you're still holding onto that lens just because the, I mean, the test is kind of skewed in the fact of they're asking questions pertinent to you being in sport kind of. Um, so that's, you know, that's where, what, what does that look like after sport? You have this cognitive dissonance after sport, right? Like you feel one way, you're supposed to act a different way, you know, and that's when you're starting to talk about like depression. Uh, specifically, you were talking about depression. And I looked, you know, also into like the anxiety and stress aspect of all of that as well, too. And I mean, they uh, all the research that points to sport being being good while you're in it, like, sure, you're right. There's some some benefits of it. But you know, what, what's the research that, that says it's bad while you're in it? You know, what about like the underperformance, right? Now you have this other cognitive dissonance, like you're the top dog on campus, but you missed that field goal, right? Or whatever it is like now, fuck, you know, not, not only are you supposed to be the top dog, but everyone else is like, you suck. Well, I must suck now. Right. It's a lot more than, than just the lens itself. It's the, it's the self-reflection um, as well. So well, an- yeah. anxiety is huge part. You mentioned that, and that's huge because what you do get are those young kids that are, I mean, anxiety is huge on the rise right now in, in teenage uh, and teenagers. 
but when you mix in, I, like my daughter, right? She, um, I watched her. She chose volleyball, right? I didn't push her any direction. I found any direction. I tried to point her. She'd be like, "Nope, you thought of it, so I'm not doing it," right? So I, she had to find her thing. I, I knew nothing of volleyball, right? And she goes there, and I watched her work so hard be, between the advanced classes she was taking and the volleyball travel and the uh, every we every other weekend on the road, right? And late night practices. I'm watching her like uh, I took a few pictures sometimes when we would travel for like eight hours to the place or catch a plane and she's in the hotel room. We just landed. We're in the room and she's doing homework and she's got to be at the court at 9 a.m. I'm looking at this going, what? No, <laughs> I'm kind of like, I don't know. No, you know, so I, I, I just became her biggest fan as long as she wanted to play. Uh, but even she would feel a little anxious and, and anxiety, right, of trying to perform, right, and take that away. And uh, for now, she's chosen not to pursue it any longer, but she's found this freedom, this this place where she can breathe, she can enjoy her studies, right? So the anxiety becomes a huge implication on a, on a few ends, not just as the young age of needing to perform. And just like you said, the failure, you missed the tackle, right? You You didn't perform well. Uh, so a social reversal, if you will, then can happen uh, sure. on many levels. Take it, a high school injury, right? The kid, we've all seen the movie. The kid's out. His college chances are gone, right? He's no longer the linebacker in the, in the school anymore. Uh, there's many, many, many detrimental. And let's go ahead and throw in head concussions, right? I didn't realize volleyball and soccer were so high uh, in the like two and three. Volleyball is like right there uh, for concussions, too. So I didn't even know that. But there's so many implications. But the anxiety also on the second part where it plays in is when you put a human being and there's you can't just be older and go, OK, I'm not that anymore. <laughs> right. You can't just right. You can't just cognitively go at it. Right. And say, OK, I'm no longer that person because the issue, like Erickson points out, is behavioral is impactful. And so if, no, you played for 17 fucking years. You can't just be like, OK, that didn't happen to me at all. All that behavior. And I'm now going to just be this person. Right. And uh, the anxiety can also begin to come because our experience in the sport, the moment they blow the whistle for the round, right, the moment the, the quarter starts, when you're in that play, you're in that moment, you're in the performance, whether it's team or solo performance, right, uh, even golfers, right, it goes all the way down. When that moment occurs, we're, we're peaking, right? We're getting rewards. We're getting flow state, right? Our brain is shutting off. Um, you know, the more we learn about the fl flow state and all with Steve and these guys, but you know, we find that place, right? It becomes hyper-intensive, right? It's a hyper-intensive situation. And this can even lead to what well, I'm sucks to say it, but PTSD is the idea of hyper-intensive situations day after day after day after day. If I told you that I'm going to, let's just use football as an example, or even volleyball when a 90 mile an hour ball's whizzing by your head, right? Anything you're doing, when you're put in that hyper-intensive situation for 15 years straight for most of your life continuously, and it's literally, once they say hud or that ball goes in the air, you're literally, you blank out and you're, you know, you're in a war. You're in a literal war, mentally, physically, uh, with yourself, right? It's, it's a constant war. When you're exposure to that over so long, and then no more, you don't get to run that maze anymore. Um, this becomes anxiety because now you're sitting around, you feel still, how do I peak those? Cause the body doesn't know the body's kind of going, all right, isn't it time? We've been doing this 15 years, right? It's time. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta get something right. And you see aggression, anger, big problems with athletes dealing with, with anger after, you know, the playing is over, the competing is over is we can't find that 
and that er comes out through anxiety. It comes through when we fail, when we try things. We used to be good at everything, right? We, we were the person, and now I can't even start a business. I can't even, they won't even interview me. Uh, secret be known, um, a, I won't use the company's name, but let's just call them the apple of construction, right? If there was a construction company that developed things, this would be the company, and it's not Apple at all. That high, right? And an inside person that was uh, a hiring person for them did the personality tests for all of these top salespeople. And now these salespeople were coming from Ivy League schools, right? These were serious coveted sales jobs, not like the one where you're hoping to get, you know, get in. And they almost all looked the same, all the people that worked there. They were going after young college graduates that were good looking, that were uh, certain methods, but not athletes. They specifically organized their personality test away from hiring athletes due to the impact that what they say is more, more people are catching on to this. They won't say this, but the athlete where they think creates drive and motivation in a job, right? You know how to do it, right? You played college football, so you must have, right? And so it's actually the opposite because many times we're waited on our school, our classes, you don't even have to perform as well in as you're the superstar. And when you are that superstar, you're and you're structured, you're told what to do as a salesperson. Uh, they just say, make sales, right? And they get you going, you got to organize, think about your own playbook, if you will. So the athlete actually, as they were coming up and finding out in their personality tests is something they did not want working for them as salespeople due to sliding by and getting by. So that's just on a deep, professional sales in, right? Of course, the drive works well if, you know, in some other job possibly. But when you think about that, this is a, I want to, I want to say the company, but I can't, but a major company like that, an impactful company in a field construction now where you would think the athlete, right? Being biased where the athlete, of course, would have this transition to uh, on, on a top level sales field is rooted out through structured personality tests or questions wow, like, did you play, <laughs> did you play sports in college? Yeah, I wonder how that actually makes them feel too. You know, they're already, what, if it's the athlete, the prime athlete, and they go in for the job interview, well, guess I'm fuck that. I'm getting this job, right? And yep. guess what? You didn't get it. Now, now where, where are they sitting? Where are they sitting, right? Right. What do I do? Who am I? Becomes the question, right? Who am I? That That's when you talk. I treated enough athletes through uh, addiction facilities, right? And that's where I also got to know it a little bit better. I'm just going to say that I got to know athletes' depression a little more is watching pro athletes and watching high school athletes, the stories they would tell in group, how they addressed their own addiction, right? They would address it with this structured militant style, you know, a, approach, right? This huge cognitive dissonance of anger and denial and fighting through it, right? With, with no purging, no weaknesses, no acceptance, no grief grieving process, none of these ideas, just fuck that, right? Muscle through this shit, right? And I'm like, you've been back three times in six months. Um, you may want to try a different strategy here, right? And But that's how an athlete, uh, men and women, both, men and women both would approach that with an athlete background. First, they approach it with this, I, I don't even know why I'm here. You know, I, I played four years professional ball. Uh, you know, I got a house, I got the thing, I'm, I'm doing this. Look, I mean, look at me, I'm in shape. I can barely walk, but I'm in shape, right? And they have this approach of this hard, hard cognitive dissonance. And that's built up because we're programmed that way. If you, no pain, no gain, right? It's a fight through the adversity. Here, Adam, let me see your finger. Get back in there, right? I mean, that's how it goes. 
So that's that mental aspect where it's helpful in, in competing and, and pushing to the top. But what we're finding out is that idea of competing and pushing to the top mixed with other social issues and how we think does not apply directly into the real world of work and family even and relationships even. Um, you're finding a real disconnect there, right? Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with all of that too. And it's kind of, it's interesting because like everything that you speak of is just slowly starting to, you know, I, I'm finding this everywhere I go, especially the more and more I did this, this research. And uh, I mean, I'm not even quite done with it. Right. So I'll, I'll have more, more for you too, because I actually have to defend it in, at the end of July. So um, that's where they're going to be coming down on me hard. And, and hopefully they, they ask and they point out all of these other things um, that, that you're talking about as well too. So. Yeah, the we'd have to run probably a, some sort of counter survey. I mean, there's statistics all over the place about how many people experience depression um, regularly, right? Those statistics are out there. If being able to pull from there um, somehow the severity levels of those depressions as linked to an athletic background and identifying with, you know, maybe an identifying question of uh, were you ever an athlete uh, of simply being, yes, I've been, I was an athlete something to kind of counteract the pull from the data that already exists, like an X amount, X amount of people experience depression every year. That's just what people are, you know, reported to anyway. Um, and again, to, a, and also I want to appease some people that I know are listening that have issues with the labels of depression. Uh, when, as people argue in global warming, right, it's just a natural occurrence. You just label it something, right. Or the scientific argument toward it, right. It's the same way with labels and mental health because diagnosis are theoretical, uh, they haven't quite yet, they assume to be close on a few things, have any brain scans or anything else that can tell you and prove to you, here, you are bipolar, look at this. They're, that can't do it. You, you do a blood test, you can show for many other things, but not mental health. Can't do brain scans just yet to prove it. So the idea that any of this, athlete's depression, de depression, uh, bipolar, all of these are theoretical in nature and are open to subjective experience. So for those people that hate the label idea of saying, hey, depression's a part of life, there's joy and there's depression, um, to make the scientific end, if you will, I'm using the global warming argument, right? It's a natural occurrence, you label it something, doesn't make it something. Oh yeah, well, here's the science for it, here's what we're proving. Uh, that depression argument of, ah, it's just a label, it's life, it's up and down. The way the scientists or researchers would argue would basically say that when it affects your biopsychosocial, when the depression lasts for two weeks is the minimum, or longer than that, two weeks to six months, and with a severe impact, and they do other severity levels, right? They do lower end and mild, et cetera, um, impacts your biopsychosocial, how you're thinking, how your biology is functioning, right? Am I experiencing anxiety to a level of my heart rate? My, my heart rate increases, blood pressure increases where it stops me from going outside. It's stopping me from going to work. Now it's affecting my social. So when it's affecting those three things in a full impactful way on various severity levels, that's when they technically apply the label of depression. So it's not the idea uh, of well, how most people think, right? And the, I'm not a label fan either, disclaimer, uh, at all. They can be very detrimental to what we do. But to argue the scientific end of it, we label things to be able to research it, to figure out pathways to be able to attack it. So for me, choosing the label of athlete's depression as a diagnosis was a necessary evil to then develop the etiology backwards and forwards of how and what is the solution to it, right? This is why I talked about earlier, right, of if we're aware of it, then we know that we adjust our social, our thinking accordingly, right? To either transition from and prepare for that. So that's that's the disclaimer, if you will, on the labeling of using the diagnosis or even using uh, 
athlete's depression or depression or you bipolar and why I'm long-winded, Nick. Sorry, dude. It, it bothers me that when you I see people, I hear them just walking around in life. I hear them joking or at restaurant tables, and they say it almost seriously where they're like, yeah, I'm bipolar, man. I'm, I'm just I'm bipolar. I know it. Or John's bipolar, right? They know the guy, right? They, oh, my friend, Tim. Oh, man, this guy. Uh, no offense if uh, John or Tom uh, or Tim. But to true definition of that idea of bipolar, I always ask them if if they're near me. I go, really? So how's that happen? Oh, man, for like, you know, one day he's this and the next day he's this. I'm like, well, that's not bipolar, right? The idea of mania is important. It's a two-week thing at minimum of, of mania and a two-week of severe suicidal depression to where like you're not going anywhere, you're not showering, you're not eating. I mean, it's a, a deadly depression of automatic suicide thoughts for two weeks at a minimum or longer. And then a shift to a manic phase. And manic does not mean excited or hyper at all. Manic means, I don't know, you have an epiphany to paint your house zebra stripes and you do it at 3 a.m. And you do it for two days straight until you're distracted because the prostitute you ordered has arrived. Right? So the, the sexual risky behavior are, de, de, are de, kind of uh, edges to it, if you will, kind of add that to it. This is mania. Mania is very dangerous. And so these people he's self-diagnosed with the labels on oh, bipolar they do a real disjustice to the very rare that do experience those uh of what it really is man sorry can you tell us bother me yeah no i i couldn't even couldn't even tell man but i think i mean like going off of what you're saying too i think it's important not to discredit the people who are just just outside of the spectrum right like it, it once we label it and we put these these brackets on it well what about the person that's just sitting on the other side of the bracket you know like you're still not good enough to be to be helped yet, but there's still something going on, right? So it's all just this sliding spectrum of how much help, how how little help do we give them? You know, that's that's kind of the danger of, of labeling it and, and making things too objective, right? Um, kind of going back on that objective field uh, to subjective field, you, you know, doing the research, I found that um, I, I don't know. Do you want me to talk specific about like numbers, like for for what I found or? Bro, you talk whatever you want to talk about. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, just while you're on it, though, the outliers, um, there's actually can be can feel a heavier impact than the in layers because an outlier and athletes are, are many times outliers just by design, if you will, over life development design are outliers to the ADHD diagnosis. They're outliers to those things. And being the outlier can be more detrimental because it's not enough for yourself to really seek help or really look into it. So like someone with ADHD that may really fully have ADHD versus someone that's on the, the edge of it is that ADHD may kick in at the worst time to the person's life to a little bit more severity or have more of an effect where over time so much issue has come from that that then heavy, severe depression sets in. So the outlier of the ADHD that missed that goes undiagnosed may end up in the long run feeling a, a heavier compounded issue because depression then builds off of small failures of lightly diagnosed, right, of in that box. When truthfully, anyone experiencing those symptoms on any level and inside or outside the box of diagnosis, there are holistic methods. There's social, there's social um, inclusion. There's ways, cognitive ways outside of those quick pills that they want to hand you over. Hey, let me hand you some theoretical pills that do, do theoretical help and theoretical damage to treat your theoretical diagnosis. Uh, okay. And it's been six minutes. I'll see you next week. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. So you look kind of like going off what you're saying. Some of those people, those, those outliers almost get slingshotted into the, the far end of the spectrum. Right. So I definitely can appreciate that. That's a good, good perspective on that. Going back to what I was saying before too, 
Um, I mean, just pulling from data from what I, what I found too, like we talk about normative data uh, in terms of like the DAS 21 that I tested on uh, both, both of the groups that I saw were increased. Like, so normative data for the DAS 21 total would be like a nine and a half score. Right. So those who competed as, as athletes um, in their adolescence had an 18 and a half score. So double what this normative data uh, suggested and, and the group B, which was those who, who did not compete had a, a 13 and a half score. So then I, when I went to go pull the values and, you know, th they ask you to do significant differences and all this other crazy shit, which I'm, I'm just got into, like, I didn't even know how to do this shit. I had to like, yeah, find out by myself. Statistical, yeah, the standard deviations. Yeah. All of that stuff. Right. So like when I went to go pull the values, well, it said that, um, nothing was statistically, uh, different or you, you know what I'm saying? And I'm, I'm pulling these numbers and I'm, I'm looking at them and I'm like, well, this P value claims that there's a, there's an 89% chance that it's significantly um, different. So just because it's not a P value of 0.05 means we should automatically discredit it. No, you know what I mean? Like, no, but I, no, I, I like that finding. Yeah. I, I dig that yeah. finding. Yeah. And, and as I started to dig more and I'm like, well, what's up with these P and T values and all this other crazy shit, you know, I started to find actual research, you know, the, the journal of basic and applied social uh, psychology, they banned significant testing altogether in 2015. I don't know. Like, I thought that was crazy. How the fuck did I miss that? I don't know, but I, I, I'll send you the article. I'll send no, you the article. No shit. Yeah. So I thought that was, so that, that really just validated what I found in general. I'm like, so I'm, I'm this close to a P value. But they I, said I can that, see why, because it's subjective again, right? We're talking about theoretical yeah. patient report, subjective ideas of depression, right? If, and if you caught me on a Tuesday and my dog passed away the other day, I'm going to be white, quite depressed. If you catch me on Tuesday and I just got my new puppy, um, it's going to be a different score for my subjective feeling of depression. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that kind of just blew, I mean, it didn't blow my mind because it made total sense, right? Like I'm sitting here like, why, why wouldn't my values, like I found that group A had a higher total mean score and they had higher scores in depression, anxiety, and stress in this test. It was higher than group B, but then the, the data analysis said that, oh, you know, I'm 5% off. So this, I have to, I have to put that in my paper now, right? Like I, I have to put in the conclusion that there was no statistical difference between groups. So you can kind of see how like, all of this just kind of gets bundled together when people say that, you know, maybe athletes depression doesn't exist, right? Sports are well, good to you. Well, because I missed by 5%, you know, like something like that, right? No, I would, I would argue back that uh, athletes, when you are compared to how many high school students or middle school go back, athletes are a very small percentage of the school. It may seem like a lot, but that's all that's really promoted from the school. So you're looking at a very small percentage of the overall amount of, kids right that move into high school that move through and with such a large database the five percent on that many kids um no matter the standard deviation could equal maybe the portion of athletes to there are general kids of that age so what you may really be finding is really the idea that there is a percentage of of children out there that will be affected in their future by something by being an athlete you may have proven that and or disproven that so with both of those, you've at least brought a marker out to say there's a 13 to 15% difference between those that didn't compete and those that did, but a double difference between the 9% to the 18% was a difference in which? Say that again. The 9% the, uh, and the 15%. What was the, or 18%. It was 9 and 18, almost double. What was that uh, marker of? 
Oh, so that wasn't that was uh the the DAS total score. So that wasn't a percentage. That was actually what they scored their total scores. Um, so each segment you're getting you're getting tested on uh, depression scores, anxiety scores, and stress scores through um, questions, right? And then you add up. You know, it, it's I think it's twenty one points. Yeah, the point system. Yeah, yeah point, point system. system. So either way, we, it shows that they're doubling in the scores of showing symptoms of the idea of depression. Well, then let's work in the idea that we talked about, that athletes don't go for help and they don't report it. So let's work in the standard deviations of all tests of the non-reported, which has got to be at least 0.01 of a standard deviation, which is a portion which separates it by at least another 6 or 7%. And either way, that, that market could be showing that market as you have the non-resistant, those that refuse to say they're depressed, right, that market different, the regular deviations just from the standardized testing that it is, or the testing type that it is, either way, I think you're still pointing out a potential segmented group that is being affected, whether it's mildly. What we may find is that it puts athletes in the outliers. What we may find is they fall into the outliers of qualifying for depression because they're strong enough, they push through, they hide it, or they don't report it, or they don't seek help for it. So typically in this testing, they fall in outside the standard deviation, but like we said said before, then are slingshotted. It's over the time. That's the huge, That's the biggest part of the athlete's depression diagnosis is its, etia, its uh, etiology is its manifestation over time. It's the 10-year span span of it that if you were treating it 10 years ago, you wouldn't go through that 10-year spectrum. So if they're outliers in the beginning, add the 10 years and interview these same people 10 years later, right? I bet you see a significant, significant stretch between those two people and a much higher proof of what they're really experiencing. Because what you may have discovered is the outliers. Knowing that, then we're going to see they're going to experience something more severe and be slingshotted into that group later. Right. Yeah. And then, and then you're, what are you stuck with now? Now, now, even if you've proven that now you have all these groups of people that are already like in their thirties, forties, fifties, or whatever it is. And now you have to be, have a, a reactive approach rather than a proactive approach. When we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, you know, if you just deal with this on a macro and micro level from when they start, you know what I mean? Like reinforce the multi-dimensions of self for them. You know what I mean? Reward the positive behaviors outside of making that, that game winning throw or whatever it is. Um, it, it, that's where it's got to start in my opinion. I don't know how you feel about it, but yeah, it, it have to be, you're right. It'd be reactive for those that are already, already experiencing it, but at least with the awareness of going, okay, this isn't your typical depression. I think I wrote in uh, what I put up is why you find the athlete going, nobody understands the therapist doesn't get it. I don't really feel like just like that. It's a little off and really it's been the athlete's depression that's there. So with the awareness of what you're experiencing now, because the athlete will sit around going, I don't get it. I have a beautiful family. Everyone is around me. I'm supportive, right? I, I work out every day. And then that's when people go, you have no reason to be depressed. I love how the, the helpers, <laughs> they look at you and you're like, dude, I don't know. I'm feeling sad. And they're like, you ain't got no reason, man. Shut the fuck up. You know, and you're like, well, thanks, buddy. You know, and those are your friends, right? They're the tough guy too, right? So the idea is where we don't report that, man. And they're not saying it. Uh, so I, I think, fuck, I lost my train of thought thinking <laughs> <laughs> I got too far ahead of myself. Um, We're talking reactive versus proactive approaches and things like that. Right, right. And being aware. So at least we can say, shit, this is why I'm feeling it, right? It's not just because I'm an asshole or I've hit my head too much or I have too many concussions that I don't appreciate what I do have in my life. I get it. That's not what it is. Thank you, friend, though. It's the idea that I'm experiencing a loss of identity, a loss of who I am, a loss of brotherhood and connection with, with those I shared for X amount of years, right? I'm missing that. 
And at least with awareness, as Leo would tell me, with awareness comes change. And so when you're aware of what it is, then you can change and fight it. And it would be reactive, those already in it. But for sure, the, the, the main goal of this or for this book to land would be into the laps of those parents raising those little gladiators to talk about the impact of what that is, but also prepare them, right? If we think that is as, if we think raising a child is as easy as going, put them in sports and they'll teach them all they have to know, you're sadly fucking mistaken. And I think it's our job as parents not to be the coach along the way as it is to be the one on the other side going, right? I'm glad sports is teaching you to compete for what you want, to work hard, to push past, you know, wanting to quit. I'm glad it's teaching you that. I'm glad your social circles have increased because of that, because of what you choose to do. But be careful. What we do is not who we are. And those friends that identify with what we do and not who we are will quickly go away when what we do goes away. And coaching them through that because they get that. And it would not to mention it would help them just in freaking life anyway, right? Just understanding that sports or not. And starting there, I think, is it. It's not, I'm not advocating anti sports or any of that. Uh, it, although I may not be a fan of everyone gets a trophy, but I'm also not afraid of let's turn fucking Little League into the World Fucking Series, you know, every, every Thursday night, you know what I mean? So, uh, I think there's that fine line, and for me, I'm hell bent on uh, you know the parents. If don't don't be that parent if I'm around. It don't be that because this this motherfucker right here would say something. I'm gonna be the guy that goes shut up. Don't talk to them like that. You know what I mean? Like I, I've been watching, so I, I'm I, I take offense. You know, to parents that feel the need to to play Gestapo uh, with coaches and other parents and their own child. Uh, they have no idea the damage they're doing to them uh, and live in a huge denial. But, uh, yeah, sorry, another little rant. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought up that point, though, too, because I completely can back that. I think that the, the problem here actually stems from, like, the society and the, the parents in general, right? Because, like, without that reinforcement, this negative reinforcement, this constant, well, reinforcement of this lens, so to speak, we wouldn't be having in this problem anyway, right? So, like, I think it's society fucked up in general just because, like, look at how much fame we give these athletes, you know, like who wouldn't watch TV, right? Everyone's glued to the TV instead of being outside and all that. They're glued to the TV and then they see commercials with these athletes and they see ESPN. Everyone's talking about the game on, you know, the water cooler and all this like jargon, right? And they're like, oh, I want my son to be like that. Or you're the kid and you see that stuff. And like, obviously that's going to be your your dream. That's that's going to be what you want. Instead of looking up to dad and, and um, becoming a good person, you've turned your focus on only doing this, right? Only getting to the NBA, the NFL or whatever it is. And I think that we've, we've taken something, uh, sports as, as play, right? Sports was developed as play. It's a pastime, right? For first off kids being outside, right? That's how it started. Everything was outside, um, and, and morphed it into something that it's, it's not right. And don't get me wrong. Like I'm not anti-sports, you know, I would never take back the years that I spent, um, wrestling and, and playing some baseball because it did teach me some, some good things, but looking back on it now, it's, it's a lot different, right? Uh, I miss my college experience. <laughs> I was busy playing football. Like I, I missed that. You know what I mean? And otherwise people are like, Oh yeah, they're alumni waving the flag, right? They're all in. And I'm like, I never got to see a game. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was you were sitting there, right? I didn't participate like that. You know, my brothers were the ones that wore my colors, right? That's what we would say. And you know, that became your lifestyle. It becomes who you hang with, who you study with, who you hit with, who you, you know, do things you don't want to do with. Right. 
and we find those connections there. And I think that's also good, right? I want to talk about the good impact of that is, right, what's every parent say? Oh, you got to keep them busy, right? Don't don't let them be bored, right? Don't let them fucking be kids, you mean? You know, don't let them, you know, play with something, right? But you'll hand them an iPhone and let them play on that shit for a couple hours, right? Uh, don't that, even get me started on that. <laughs> right, that shit. Yeah, that's detrimental. But the idea is, you know, it does keep kids that maybe need to be involved, right? Keeps them busy, keeps them making the grade, right? Keeps them doing that. And uh, although you and I could probably go in depth ripping apart the need to make the grade in this fucking structured robot creating education system of shit. Um, you know, <laughs> I feel kind of disillusioned telling her to make good grades in a system that I know is trying to turn you into a robot uh, and not really telling you a lot of shit in the history books for real. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's hard to be like, hey, make sure you earn those grades of that shit they're telling you to memorize, you know? Those things that, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's hard. It's hard not to do. And then, hey, get a college degree, right? And I'm like, I, look, this past year, I've been telling my daughter, I'm like, I don't give a shit if you go to college or not. I'm like, get into something you love, try that, learn that, go intern somewhere, right? You know, you got some time to do that. You know, you don't necessarily have to go do it. But it's like, Dad, I need the college experience. And I'm like, fuck. I'm like, they, they don't sold you that they they stopped selling. All these brochures were coming to the house for her, right? And uh, all these colleges, shit. And I and I kept a couple of them. I, I kept them on purpose. I was doing a little research myself. And I was looking into it, and essentially, I'd say most of the brochures now, they spend a lot of money, right? Mailing all that shit out is expensive. It's beautiful, all these pictures. And it was few and far between brochures that talked about the value of their degree from their university. And and maybe you'd see a job placement thing maybe in a field at most, and it'd be the sentence on the fifth page. But it opened with the college experience, Okay. Right. It was selling me the experience. I'm reading the brochure, having been to college, going, I don't have to go here again. Right. So I'm reading through it. I'm going, man, they're selling this shit to me like a sandals resort, bro. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's places to relax at, right? And community open. And by the way, you'll have class, right? Our, some of our renowned professors or our research right. or our departments. And I'm like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? And I'm going, what are they doing? So she's like, man, I'm like, I guess you got to have that college experience. I don't, as a dad, I don't even fucking want to know. Uh, you know. Dude, how jacked up is that, right? Like, just you saying that stuff. Like, they're trying to. What, what are they selling, right? Did Did these colleges attend sales seminars where they have to, like, you know, target our identity? Like, if you come here, this is the person you will become. You know what I mean? Like, here, try this lens out. You know, essentially, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah. what the fuck? You know, when listen, like, I can. I feel like I can say this because I, you know, I attended my undergrad, obviously my master's too, but. I'm not opposed to, to knowledge, right? I think knowing and learning is one of the best things you can do. But when you have a broken establishment, like college system is right now, it's a business. It's a fucking business, man. It's a state run business. And it, it's just crazy. I mean, I, I'm not going to bust out names of the, the universities that I went to because people could find those out. But my undergrad uh, university, that might not even be around much longer. Like the, the president, the president just like got fired. I don't know if he's getting arrested, something where he misallocated funds, like millions of dollars spent on, on administration, right? Like what the fuck are you doing? And it, trust me when I say it's not that great of, I mean, it's a good university, but it's no Princeton or Harvard, right? Like, so they're just taking our money and just using it for something. But well, they're, they're anchor. It's debt, right? They just anchor you in debt. It's selling you the, they got smart. I think the, well, the younger generations, the ex millennials or all the other different fucking things you call your 
damn moment in time, uh, whatever you are, generational of men, who cares? You know, um, they know it's, it, well, you're going to, you're going to grab debt. So it, it's coming here, but they know they're catching on to less shit. People are, are, are buying less stuff, right? There's still a huge junk food out there. As my cousin said yesterday of, you know, buying the next Jordans or whatever that fucking shit is of gathering shit of whatever our need is to gather stuff like squirrels and stack it in our garages. I will never fucking understand dog. <laughs> it, it drives me nuts. I drive by and people's garages are open. I'm like, what are you doing with all that shit in there? You can't even park your car in there. And I'm like, you just, this is, that's their shit, man. It's my stuff. That's, that's theirs. Yeah. <laughs> it's my stuff. And I'm like, like, you're like a squirrel with a bunch of little nuts. You're never going to fucking eat. And, and then you got to spend more money to move the stuff, to house the stuff, to keep the stuff. You're spending your own kids money to hold your nuts in there. You know what I mean? And like, it's this gathering of, of, of stuff. Uh, I don't know where the fuck I was going. I got, I got distracted on the idea of people gathering stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I lost track. I just started to envision everybody's garages in my neighborhood just full of, like you're saying, just shit, man. What are you doing? What yeah. You doing? Oh, yeah. It was, it was gathering of dead, I think, right? It was oh, some, yes. some connection there. So it's it's walking out. And, oh, no, gathering of stuff, right? People are catching on and not wanting stuff, right? And this is getting on. So they got smart, man, like the overlords of marketing, dude. I, I wrote my thesis actually for my first degree uh, like you did. I wrote it on uh, something like the, the end of mankind was when marketing found itself or some shit like that. And it was this basically when marketing was birthed, it was fucking over. It was over for our, our conscious, our psyches. It was fucking done. And I wrote this whole paper on how it influenced smoking and changed biology all over the fucking years. You know, that madman era. When that madman era came out, that's it. I, I was like, that's it. The psyche was blown. It was done. You're now being shaped in who you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to do, what success is, um, what images it looks like. And uh, well, they caught on to the idea of stuff, right? We're not buying as much stuff. So they caught on to the idea that we all want the experience. Well, if you've lived in fucking United States long enough, experience for the most part costs fucking money. And especially yeah. the experience they're selling you, whether it's college, the tour, the Grand Canyon, where for the most part you can camp, you can watch sunsets, you can fish, you can do these things. Uh, soon there won't be enough shoreline. You can actually fish without paying a fucking fee, right? You got to get a license to even fish from the, you know. So uh, you're strapping it all up and they've, they've got really, really good, Nick, at selling the experience you must have. Yeah, I think it's so jacked up. I think it's incredible too. I I don't know I don't know where it, it originated from. Where where did it uh, start? Your thesis. Where did it start? Like, uh, well, it picked up with Mister Ford himself selling vehicles. Okay. okay. That motherfucker. <laughs> so ma- manipulation of the masses, right? It's not even trying to sell anything as as it is telling you what you need, right? I don't right. have a choice on what I need or what I want or what I want, right? It's what what do I need according to them because that's what's that those are the images that's going to be projected towards me anyway. Yep. Right. And I it goes back for the and marketing goes back further. I mean, it, you can go all the way back to selling anything that anyone was selling, whether it was their uh, religiosity or selling their uh, sure. why to be in the army or why the Greeks are the shit or why Persia. Right. We've, we've all found ways to sell something, uh, including ourselves to other people. So uh, marketing is rooted deep into some idea. But when it became the manipulation of shaping a society, when the TV was born beyond radio, when when the masses were reached with this influence, right, when the, when you were somebody when you're driving your Ford. And then by the way, Ford made it possible because he's the first person that started doing loans to where you could buy the car and just pay him weekly or pay him monthly. He, he started debt, if you will. So uh, the idea That's of acquiring, 
Yeah, yeah, I'm telling you, man. Um, between that, and then it became in your face, right? You're the somebody if you're tooting your little Ford horn down the fucking street, right? And you're doing your thing. Uh, and why not? Come on down. Just pay me ten bucks a, a month, right? And and owe me the five hundred over a couple of years. You're good for it. If not, I'll come get my car, right? But no worries. We trusted Jim, right? I don't know why his name's Jim, but it is, right? And <laughs> he's driving. But it was that image of of creating uh, who we are, and you know athletes and sports themselves uh, have always had kind of that image along the way as they were simply at one point uh, they were games for fun and play as the cross actually was stolen from my native people. It was a game that we played over here uh, that they picked up on and the cross was born from that as a, of a right of manhood and boyhood and play and fun and connectiveness. And uh, it's been blown up now. It's been blown up into you need to be LeBron. You got to look like LeBron. You you got to be treated like LeBron. You have got to have many Twitter followers, right? And you can be this. And the athlete is deemed this. And now it's beginning. And then when you put the child uh, in a young age in that structure, then here comes the marketing psyche of what you wear, how you dress, how you're supposed to act like, right? I mean, what headphones you fucking use when you work out, right? You, you got to have all this shit. And you might, well, I'm an athlete, man. Athletes drive Camaros. <laughs> I don't know why I just came up with that, right? I'm not, I don't know what they do, but it's just the thing, right? And uh, it's, it's that mass reach, brother, when it became not just in the proximity, but when you could, you know, you talked about the TV and the phone, when we could reach the masses with image witchery of what the person is deemed to do, supposed to, supposed to be, go, have, wear, experience, uh, that's where it's gotten scary, man. The, the, the selling of the experience uh, to the masses at once with uh, psyche manipulation, uh, that's difficult. And it plays into sports, you know? Yeah, man, way to rope that back in. I started trailing off. Like, how the fuck did we just get talking about people's shit in their garages? And then <laughs> I like how you, yeah, listen, hey, you did rope that in well, too, because it is, it's all connected, right? Like, we started off with, with the athlete and, and putting them on a pedestal on the TVs and the smartphones, and, and they're selling just the way the colleges are selling, right? The identity, the, you know, this is what you need, not what you want. This is what you need. You need to be the LeBron James, like you're talking about. How many followers does your twitter have well you can get more if you're a better better athlete right things like that so it all just abs. From this. we can go right into yeah, functional patterns right oh, selling you in your abs yeah <laughs> shout out to functional patterns i'm in here in austin real quick we'll get off topic it's an yeah. awesome city shout no, that's to that shit's on topic fp to me is on topic they're fighting dogma yeah. of a way of hey question why you think you need abs question and it links into sports you know what let's fucking go there dude i don't give a fuck about that's an hour it. man I'm hanging. So, you know, let's work in the idea of how you work out for these sports, right? I mean, I, I obviously we've covered wrestling and football, which work out sim, similar, similarly. I can't work my tongue today. And, and they work out, you know, whether it's high intensity, but weightlifting, et cetera, intensive cardio, uh, all kinds of funky movements, right? And our bear crawls and whatever the fuck we're doing, right, to be in shape. Uh, I, I speak from directly my own experience uh, playing through college, et cetera, um, and having a little stint playing some, uh, I call it AAU uh, semi-pro, right? <laughs> it's, the, it's the $50 a day paid, you know, type deal. Short stint with that, but um, always worked out. I always stayed big. That's just what I did. And it was anywhere from 225. I was 240 when I was uh, playing at one point. Uh, and then thinking about trying out to come back on again, uh, 242 is where I'd work. I was as small as 225 uh, in college, but uh, I'm obviously my frame. I'm 185, you know, 185 now and, and, and thin, but 
the way and the methods of training in that was all I was taught. So as I got older, even though I wasn't playing, all I knew was that, was the workout for football, right? That's what I knew, and that's how I continued to train, despite I could my back fucking hurt. You know what I mean? I'm getting up in the morning like, oh, fuck, this shit hurts. You know, everything was no, no pain, no gain, right? I got to get diesel. You know, I got to go in the spend two hours in fluorescent lighting, you know, and <laughs> and get jacked, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm at home like, fuck, my elbow's killing me. You know, my lower back in the morning, man, I'm like, what the hell? And falling on FP, all that shit is linked, man. So it's sports at a young age, right? You learn to work out a certain way. That's what you learn to eat a certain way. That's why you see a lot of football players deal with weight gain because you're coming off of ingesting 3,000 calories a day, you know, sometimes five or six if you're lineman. So you're coming off of these calorie diets. All you know to work out is this, but you don't know why your knees don't fucking work anymore. <laughs> you know, that's, that's all the structure. And uh, what even FP is fighting is that idea of all of that, all that shit. Yeah, man, totally. I, I got too many friends like right now that that transition from, you know, being the athlete to, OK, I'm going to be the guy in the gym. You know what I mean? Because that's what like you were saying, that's what they did when they were an athlete. Right. So they're holding on to that that self-identity, that that lens, so to speak, like all right, I hold this close. So I got to do more of this to get like that. And I don't know if that makes sense at all, but I got to go get punched um, in the face. I mean, that's what I mean. You see them go a tons go MMA, man. And like you, you're going to go get punched in the face now. Yeah. And I mean, listen, so there's nothing you want to be an MMA superstar. Cool. If that's like your transition, whatever, but if you're using it as like a coping mechanism, like, and who am I to say who's doing what, I don't know, but they're, they're out there, right. There's both ends of the spectrum. Um, that really becomes a problem because guess what? Like, especially if you're doing all your traditional lifting and then you go into the MMA ring and you get punched in the face, talk about head trauma. Now your back hurts even more, all this shit. So it really is connected. And, and, and shit, man. It's all in man. I, my brain. What we you know what scares me. I got a lot of MMA fighter uh, friends, man, like that are deep in it, man. That dedicated their life to it, and I admire the fuck out of these dudes. I mean, they truly are fucking warriors. I mean, if you choose that, it's it's about other than you know football, wrestling, a couple other. When you think about the idea of the gladiator, the warrior, you know, I mean, that's as close as that real definition gets. Is if you're doing that shit and you're sacrificing right. your body, like it's. And what scares the shit out of me, man, is we've already seen the era now of the retired football players that have done 20 years of headbanging, um, the issues and impacts from uh, the brain injuries uh, and so forth, which weighs down to tons and tons of mental health issues and physical injuries. Um, you know, players that take 30, 45 minutes to get out of bed in the morning, you know, their wives are massaging their knees, personal players that I know. Uh, they're going through that shit. Um, but the, uh, oh, I forgot where I was going. Damn it. I'm losing track all day, but um <laughs> <laughs> the idea of, of, of lifting so heavy along the way and hurting yourself despite, oh, yeah, the, the warrior impact of the fighter is, you know, MMA been around a while, but not quite as long as football, if you will. I mean, it's been around since fucking the Coliseum and further back. Don't get me wrong. But to where there's this huge wave of wannabe fighters, there's this huge mm -hmm. wave of now it's not so much I want to be LeBron as I want to be Conor McGregor, right? right as I right. want to be Floyd Mayweather. I, you see that stretch too. It's emerged much larger than it's ever yeah. been before. Where's the spotlight at, right? Where's You're right. Right. It is, right. Yeah, so they transfer, man, and I'm worried though because it's so young now that there hasn't been a mass a mass group affected. But as you're starting to see these older fighters that are way gone out of the, you know, or a couple years out of fighting, etc., five, six, seven, eight, you're starting to see real, real terrible impacts that they're experiencing. You know, um, how they're talking, how they communicate, headaches, nightmares, uh, sleepless fucking nights, man, uh, mood swings, etc. 
And the, the terrible part about that is we know so little about traumatic brain injury. And we all we know is it can really fuck you up. And there's certain areas that affect certain things, but you can't count every time you've been hit with a helmet or a fist. You know, you run a serious risk. That's why I call those dudes fucking warriors, man, because they're truly every MMA fighter or fighter female out there. Uh, is They truly put their shit on the line, man. Like they, they really fucking do, man. Yeah, and most of these amateurs too. I mean, like they're just out there to 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 get that spotlight. They're not even taking care of their physiology along the ways. And even the ones that are are good and know what they're doing, they're not even taking care of their physiology, right? They've been they've been just eating up these dogmas served on a silver platter all their life, and they just continue going. And uh, I, and for the record too, I actually do think there's there's some straight warriors out there. Like, don't get me wrong, I have some some buddies who they're meant to be MMA fighters. You know what I mean? So not that everyone's just using that to grab some spotlight or whatever. Um, but I think everyone could serve to use a little bit of uh, physiology readjustment, if you will, right? Like get out of the dogma of, of traditional lifting and, and your nutrition plan built by bodybuilding.com and all this other garbage that's out there, right? You got to take care of yourself. It, it's hard, man, because, you know, when you're, let's take a person, you know, that's been going through a tough time, right? They, they, I don't know, pick it, right? They went through some shit in life and to pick themselves out of it, uh, maybe it was athletes depression they were experiencing and to pick themselves out of it, you know, they went to what they knew, right? So they started lifting again, running again, doing the football thing, knowing that's what you do, right? And they put on another 15 pounds of muscle that are shredded, right? They're doing their thing. Um, this served a purpose. This really gives them a reward, right? So then to look at that person and tell them that everything that you just experienced, how you were going to kill yourself a year ago, but now you brought in deadlifting, CrossFit, and all this football genre shit back. When you brought all this now into your life, here you are a year later, and you're happy, you're loving life, you're feeling great, your back hurts like hell, and you're injured in a few places, but you'll muscle through it. Right? Even though all that's happening, it's hard for that person to go, now let me question everything that I know just worked for me. Everything that I know that stopped me from killing myself, um, let me not use, right? Even though, oh, shit, my back hurts, right? The denial of what's happening, that mental reward for so many people, I think, honestly, Nick, don't give a shit. I think so many people are like, fuck it, I'll throw my back out. I'll look ripped and shredded, and I'll be deadlifting all this CrossFit stuff and competing in these things. Now, by 52, I probably won't be able to put dishes in a dishwasher and, and bend over, but you know what? It, it's the trade-off, right? What, what are you willing to risk? Are you willing to risk you know, being damn near crippled, if you will, by 52 or 60 uh, eventually, right? There's obviously the 50-year-olds and 70-year-olds even that are out there lifting weights that are the outliers, right? They're the outliers that have lifted all this stuff. I'm of them have been through surgeries and shit anyway, right? It's hard. It's, whatever, right? Yeah, brother, it was hard for me. When I first came on Naughty Shit, I'm like, fuck this dude. You, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I never told this motherfucker that. I love yeah. the shit out of him, but I came across his shit, and I'm going, nah, dude, mm-mm. Because I was the dude who was like the athlete. I'm going, no, this is this stopped me from killing motherfuckers again. You know what I mean? Like I, right. I stay lifted. I stay focused, right? I'm, I'm doing this. I, because all this is why I'm not in the streets anymore. That's why I'm not. So you're going to tell me now I'm hurting myself? Hold on now. Oh, wait. You know what I mean? I'm trying to get up and I'm in flat denial that my back hurts like a motherfucker, right? That everything in pain. But I, I was, it hit my cognitive dissonance so fucking hard, right? Like, man. But at the time, I was in that mood where I was writing this book. I was doing the shits where I'm going, fuck, I greeted that with some direct, concrete fucking nose. And I'm like, shit, I got to question that shit now, man. So I had to, and I did his basic bullshit. Base, I wanted to treat it as basic as possible. I did the basic stuff, and I switched at the time to 
uh, from uh, I ate completely clean and organic uh, as much as I could uh, and watched my protein intake. All I did was switch to that. And this, it was this light level shit, man. This, like, I feel like I'm playing, you know, patty cake in the living room with the band. You know what I mean? Right, like, right, the right. shit's not even real. You know, I'm like, I'm not doing anything, man. And I was doing that, but no fluorescent lighting, right? No weights, no gym. And like, it was two fucking months, bro. I went from 240 and I was like 170. You know what I mean? It's like two months. Of, and I was doing cold showers intermittently, but not often. And I was like, what? The, my back doesn't hurt, dog. I was like, holy shit. I'm like, I thought this was the rest of my life. You know what I mean? Living with right. this, that little, every time you bend down, you know? And that little basic shit, my elbow, I had major left uh, elbow issues, man. And gone. All this shit fucking left two months. Plus, I was light as fuck. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you're coming. Yeah, I'm like, you're coming on the podcast. And it was funny when I first called Naudi. He, uh, <laughs> he goes, I'm going to have to call you back. And so he, he called, he, I reached out messaging, right? We changed phone numbers. So I could call you back. And so I think he just was doing some research on the shit I was saying. And uh, anyway, he calls back and he goes, hey, you know, a lot of people don't really like this, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, a lot of people hate me, right? And I was like, yeah. I'm like, I do. And I'm like, a lot of people hate me in mental health right now too, man. And so he's like, all right, let's do this shit. And all I had done was that that experience of kind of, you know, talking about my loss, uh, the weight, all this other stuff, and brought him on. I think it was episode uh, 69 or some shit like that. But, uh, yeah, that interview was, fuck me up, man. <laughs> fuck me up. And all the, I even, shit, the second edition of the book, man, if you read the first edition of the book, it's called Exercise, and I left it open to interpretation of implementation. And the second book, the second edition, I call it Movement. Exercise left the building, but I, I talk about how, Sure, you can find things that feel good for you, that put you in enthusiasm, find happiness, do good. But comparatively speaking to the long-term effects of your biomechanics and your pain, right? And I had to mention my boy. I mean, it was a whole part of the revision, man. That's how much that shit fucked with me. Yeah, there you go, man. Yeah, I think it's kind of weird, too, because like, like you were describing to you, like the workout stopped you from killing motherfuckers, right? So, But that's like the only tool that you've ever known, right? It's the only tool. And then somebody, it's like having a, a giant sledgehammer in your mind. And then, you know, now he comes along with this screwdriver and you're like, I have this fucking sledgehammer, man. What do I need that screwdriver for? And then you realize that you're trying to screw in nails and you got this piece of shit sledgehammer. It doesn't matter anyway, right? Yeah. And and not I had to change so much because I'd be working out with either my old school fucking hood shit on or my Rage Against the Machine on, you know, so I'm used to an hour or two of walking around pissed the fuck off at something, you know, picking things up and putting things down. Right? And I had to and I try to do functional patterns to rage. You know, you can if you're kind of pissed and you want to focus, but I'm shout out if you do. But I, I had to switch. Right. So my music style, how I approached it. Right. There's no psyching up before my rep. You know, it's more breathing right. before the rep focusing and calmly i'm like what the fuck is happening man <laughs> it makes so much sense too when you like you zoom out of it right like you're stuck in this sympathetic mode like 24 7 you know <laughs> you're going through all this shit you're like oh i know what i'm gonna do to make me feel better yeah we're gonna put on rage music go to the gym start throwing shit around just jack that pair that sympathetic system up you know what i mean <laughs> right Right. That's, I think that's where people don't get it too. Cause then they go into the gym and you're trying to do functional patterns. Like you said, you, you can't throw that stuff on. I don't throw that stuff on at least, you know, you, you activate a different system and it actually does shit for you. Like make you lose 40 pounds. Right. Yeah. It's a trip, man. As you really can't, people can't let go of the, uh, 
that there are, I mean, it's all behavioral, right? We'll take Erickson's approach, right? It's how the rat gets the cheese. So if that's what we did to get the reward, no, I'm not going to change yeah. my music to affect, this is what I do. I get pissed off before I, I go get Jack. And there's an issue too with that, man, is a uh, fight reverb is if you don't work out for a couple of days and you're one of those people that are, are working out like in, to an intense level of where you're sparring, right? Or you're lifting hardcore weights on a tons of fucking pre-workout shit, right? If you're, <laughs> if you're doing that and you, you push yourself, but then maybe you don't for a couple of days, the body biologically still wants to respond in that fight mode. So yeah. if you don't work out for two days, three days, you can become an irritable piece of shit and you're going to fight somebody because the body is wanting to go, okay, it's, it's four o'clock on the day. This is when we beat up the bag or lifted the weights and, and popped all that fucking uh, cocaine pre-workout shit that we were pumping in us. Yeah, no, I definitely, I, I've experienced that too. Like I know exactly what you're talking about, especially like you're saying like, it's almost like, it's like you're supercharging that rubber band. Like every time you sling, you, you have a slingshot, you're pulling it, you're working out, right? And then you don't, you just keep pulling it and pulling it and pulling it and pulling it until you just fucking snap one day, right? And your body doesn't know anything else because it's never, you've never turned on your parasympathetic nervous system. It's always been fucking crack cocaine before you go to the gym, right? Like that's all it's ever been, you know? And that's now it. you're sitting there doing breathing exercises and you're getting, <laughs> I mean, I had the same, I had the same experience too, like, so prior to this, prior to my FP experience, I was um, into, you know, the typical, I went to the powerlifting, the bodybuilding scene and, and all that stuff. And like, I would doing the functional patterns, like I would start to feel anxiety, like real anxiety, right? Cause my body's just trying to fight what I'm doing. Like, no, this is not what you're doing. This is why are you breathing right now? Hold your breath, squat more. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I get, I get that. I get it. Yeah, it, it, it stays with us, man. I mean, what we choose to do and, uh, again, taking that same mentality of whatever you did pre-wrestling match or whatever the athlete does pre-Friday night, right, or pre-competition weekend, whatever that ritual becomes, right, it, that ritual we, we, we become in love with, man. It's a lot of people that get addicted to doing certain drugs, man, for a while they're affected by addiction. It's the ritual 10 minutes before you're actually doing the drug. It's It's what you do prior to set the setting. And so for the, the athlete is something similar, right? Is that when it's game day, right? When it's fucking game day, what I eat, what I wear, you know, the underwear you never wash, right? We go as far as believing in all that fucking luck shit, right? We we go that deep into it to where the ritual pregame, you're catching me playing some Last of the Mohicans music in my ears before I walk out that tunnel. You know, it's set me in this, I'm about to get some native wild on your crazy ass, right? It's this focused shit for me. And when we try to then recreate that, right, we do the pre-workout, the hype up, the play in the rage before the, the before we walk in for the first couple sets. And we have, a lot of times we got reward out of that. We found reward out of that. Then we whooped somebody's ass Friday night, right, in that, in that game. Or we took somebody down and made the highlight reel or what the not. You know, we try to recreate that in life, man. And it's uh, – I use a poor analogy, but it's kind of like that love relationship that you had that you may have lost in your life that you in your life general you gu speaking is trying to replace and every person you meet just doesn't measure up the idea is you have to realize that the experience of that person was just that experience and never nothing like that again and that's how awesome it was it's that way with sports is going that those nights those training that time it was great it was the best there ever was and there'll be nothing like that again when you can let go of that idea and stop trying to match it and stop trying to find something in life that is equal to it. You open and free yourself. You free your psyche to be able to connect to things that you will feel uh, just as passionate about like mental health did for me. You know, I, I used to beg, you know, even pray for, you know, give me something that I loved as much as football, you know, 
and something that I loved more that didn't risk my life, like dealing drugs and opening up nightclubs and running nightclubs. Give me something that's not going to make me shoot somebody or get shot that I love to do, <laughs> please. Sure. And, and kind of, I guess maybe the shit and the, the shit I had to go through and kind of prepared me and led me to that. And psychology really pushed that for me. Philosophy opening all this became that passion for me when I was able to then package what sports was and put that on the shelf and go, man, that was fucking awesome. And I'll never recreate that again. I'm free. Then I was like, Oh shit. I fell in love with mental health. What the fuck? You know what I mean? I was like, all of a sudden I could date again, right? I could date again outside the, the passion of being the athlete. I could go, wait a minute. I was I never made good grades, Nick. Like that's not what I, it was. I, I made my B's and my C's to get by and to get to my college. But then when I found mental health, dude, I made one B and that's fucking debatable. And I still take that professor to the wall about that B. And I made A all the way through. And I'm looking at this going, when the fuck did I become this dude? I got friends that still find the show that were friends back then or something or look up. I, my first message from them is, who the fuck are you? That's what I get from them is like, who the fuck are you? I'm like, I know. I didn't know. Right. But until I could like de detach from being the drug dealer, it went on. Right. I used the same method, bro. When I was the linebacker, I was the football player. I was the drug dealer. I was the nightclub owner. Right. I, I became I played those same labels forward, looking for those same intensive situations, trying to recreate them. But until you can divorce it and say, hey, man, I love that. It was so awesome. I'm, I'm done chasing what that is. That was a great time. And I'm not going to try to match that. You, you can become open, man. That's shit we'll start writing about more in the book, man. That's kind of the curve. I've been working on how we do yeah, yeah, this yeah. and not make, you know, 51% of the United States hate us immediately. Ah, fuck them. Because <laughs> you I come out. You, you said. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, you come out and saying, hey, sports, uh, if you put your kids in them, they have a 65% chance of having a severe mental health impact uh, more than any other child. You're going to get some heat. I'm gonna get killed is what I'm gonna get. Yeah. Peepot like the peewee pop uh dads and show up at my doorstep with his son and tell me to apologize or some shit. I don't know. Are you kidding? Interested I'm I'm more worried about the drill sergeant soccer moms, man. Are you kidding with that van full of little heathens? Man, they run those little heathens, those soccer moms that get some militant drill soldier shit, man. I, they'll run your ass over. There was a video on Facebook the other day. <laughs> soccer mom ran the dude over for stealing her purse. I'm like, you know, that's oh, what? Yeah, that's uh, left field. But that's who, I, that's who I'm worried about, man. I dealt with Pop Warner weirdos my whole life. But, no, nope, hey, you may be a good Pop Warner coach. Shout out to you if you are, right? There's few and far between Yeah. Uh, if you really do it, right? But, uh, yeah, we, we'll, we'll find a way, man, to really start to curb what we're talking about. I think where, where it comes from, the, the opening we really kind of framed and trying to really see where that shapes into a, the direction we want to take the book. I'll talk with you more, too, uh, in private about how we want to take the book is curbing it. I think we may have the direction with curbing it to the awareness, bringing to light what it is, the effects, and possibly really being able to implement or at least study uh, solutions, like of like what people could do to put in their lives, right, to kind of end it more on this positive note of when this yeah. is happening, here's uh, kind of an approach, if you will. Yeah, no doubt. I obviously it's nice to be able to point something out, right? But like if you don't have a solution for it either, you're part of the problem too. You know what I mean? We could sit here and talk about everything we want. I can sit here with all my notes and show you what I got, but it, it's it's the what, but so what? You know what I mean? Like I could tell you you're messed up and then walk away. Well, I'm a bigger piece of shit than if I never told you in the first place, right? So yeah, I think it's important that we we provide that next step. We go that extra route and say, We understand, you know, let's let's try this. Let's go this route. Let's stop that, you know? 
Yeah, I think uh, I'd like to organize another survey that goes a bit deeper, maybe with some qualifying entry question, questions and maybe disqualifying later into the test uh, over certain time periods. But uh, I'd like to maybe start working on a new survey to, that we can maybe launch through Cognitive Rampage or listeners or even FP um, without trying to get it too skewed, but just trying to gather some more data and, and separate those out. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll send you my information too that I have here, but I was trying to keep it short too, because I feel like once you start asking too many questions for people, they get disinterested or whatever it is. So you find that fine line between uh, asking too much and, and getting enough information at the same time. But I, yeah, I don't know. You only got through one question on mine, you said? Yeah, because the specific event within the year. Okay. All right. Just making sure. At least you know I was being so honest. Yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. I feel so bad because a lot of people were hyped about it. I let them know and like, yeah, let's do this. And it's one question. And I'm like, oh, shit, I'm sorry, man. I, uh, what do you, That's how I felt. I was like, I can't even experiment. I can't even participate in my own survey for the fucking for, I, <laughs> some garbage. And I was like, man, you know, but uh, yeah, you you know now what, what you boys been going through. We talked before we came on the show, but uh, yeah, yeah, I was I disqualified you. off the rip, man. <laughs> my bad. Next one. I'll make sure you get through two. Shit, we'll man. Sure life can't to... life can't promise me that shit. So we can't structure any survey that's gonna guarantee I get by question one, man. <laughs> I'll put in question one as a as a you know, what's your favorite color? And number two will be the disqualifying <laughs> question. Just make you feel like you're it's still pertinent, man. It's still pertinent. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'd like to see how many people chose black that are experiencing depression. Hey, you know what? That's not actually not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing right there. I wear a lot of black, man. Or red. All the aggression people, the red. Uh, um <laughs> hey man, right, right there. Hey. Uh, I meant blue, man. I meant blue. <laughs> well, that was the other logo, man. I have blue in the thing. God, oh damn, man, I can't win right now. <laughs> oh, dude, I enjoyed this conversation, man. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, most definitely. Thank you for having me on. I, I, anytime you need a new guest or you want me to come on, I'm more than happy to just talk or you know shoot me a, a private call. We'll shoot. The well, shit. dude, well, well, we didn't talk about how you were you're one of the uh, the few talent bookers for the Cognitive Rampage. I mean, you were booking a lot of the fucking guests that I was interviewing, man. When's that? I said booking any guests. Oh, I'm thinking about you know what? I totally separated with Eric, man. Anyway, oh, yeah. you know what? I offered Eric, but not you. That was the mishap. Um. You also interview host, take over the rampage, man. Whether it's 30 days or 60 days, Alex Price, uh, who you're there with, he's uh, got some interviews lined up. Philip Martin, who's who's there with you in Austin. Yeah, um, guys. yeah I think he's got an interview lined up. Uh, Nina Chow, I keep indirectly telling everyone that I invited her to do it, but not told her directly yet. And I'm doing that. I'm doing that on purpose because it drives her nuts. So uh, and puts her on the spot so she doesn't have time to say no. I'll uh, ask her today. No, that's what, no. Tell her that she is. Just say Adam has said it on multiple shows already that she'll be filling in as a guest host for a while, um, and then and yourself such and yourself as well, man. So I I think Nina. I probably asked uh, maybe one other person. I'm forgetting. I'm sorry if I forgot your name. I love you, uh, but you should, man. Everything's going through Steve too. Um, okay. So yeah, just uh, stay in touch with me. Yeah, I'll kick at you, man. Let's, let's wrap this shit up, man. Thank you very much. You, you wrap it up. No, you wrap it up. Want me to wrap it up? <laughs> no, I was going to tell you to wrap it up. I was just fucking with you. Oh, man. Good looking, too. I, uh, we'll, we'll still be talking, man. So uh, thanks again for coming on and sharing, brother. Thank you, Adam. All right. Love you, dude. Love you, man. Peace.